Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Remember that sitcom, that 70s show? On one of the episodes, it captured the awkwardness surrounding menopause. Here's the lovable Foreman family. Mom, I'm really sorry. I know you wanted a baby, but I'm not really sure what to say, mainly because I'm not really sure what menopause is. <laughs> are you, are you, you know, like, lose your hair? <laughs> Shut up. She's not losing anything. This just means that from time to time, a woman's body... <clears throat> Can he explain it to the boy? <laughs> hey, Mom, maybe you should talk to Grandma about this. Oh, uh, that's an idea. I mean, we're just ignoramuses. Okay, okay, let's go. <laughs> is it, is it like a lady parts thing? <laughs> we'll look it up in the world book. Joking aside, what is going on with a woman's body during menopause? Today, where we live, we'll have a frank conversation about it, and we'll take your calls too. Women and men, what are your questions about menopause? My guest today is a best-selling author of The Vagina Bible. Dr. Jen Gunter is an OBGYN, and her latest book, another bestseller, is The Menopause Manifesto. She's joining us on Zoom today. Dr. Jen Gunter, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I just want to let our listeners know that while Dr. Gunter will be here for the full hour, she's not here to offer individual medical advice. We're here to learn from her. And if you have individual questions, we just want to urge you to talk to your doctor about your own health. Now, uh, Dr. Gunter, I loved hearing that clip from that 70s show because when we hear about menopause, if we don't know a lot about it, we tend to want to make jokes or to, to try to lighten the awkwardness about this subject. So. Can we talk about how we got to this place? And when we hear the word menopause, why are there negative connotations? Well, I think it really boils down to the fact that, you know, women in our society have unfortunately and sadly been valued for, uh, you know, for for a very narrow time in their lives, you know, their, their sort of early reproductive phases. And, you know, anything that uh, also happens, you know, to the female body is quote, quote, mysterious. Of course, it's not. But if you want to oppress the population, telling them that their, their actual biology is shameful is a really good start. And, and so you have sort of the shame that that society imparts on a woman's body. You have, um, you know, the, the value that's placed on youth very specifically for women. And you see absolute erasure of, of, you know, women as they age from our culture. You, you know, you, 
if you just go to the movies, you know, it's very common to see a 55 year old protagonist partnered with a 25 year old, you know, and, uh, you know, the 35 year old's too old to play his partner. So, you know, you have all of these, these forces. And so it just becomes this thing no one talks about because, you know, who wants to talk about your, um, your ticket to pre-death? Mm. Now, when you uh, when we read your book, The Menopause Manifesto, you break it down really well. Uh, we start with the basics and then we learn a lot about what's happening uh, with our bodies. So let's let's talk about menopause 101. I wanted to just read your intro, which I love just a part. Uh, you wrote, quote, if menopause were on Yelp, it would have one star. This establishment has temperature control issues, drenching heat followed by terrible chills, defies the laws of thermodynamics, would not recommend. And so I, I love that, uh, that introduction. When we think about menopause, what is it exactly? Well, so menopause is basically puberty in reverse, you know, so it is the um, the winding down of ovarian function, uh, meaning ovulation. And it's a planned event, you know, for, for decades, probably a lot longer, there has been this mistaken assumption that we women are only experiencing menopause now because of the longevity that we have due to modern medicine. But that's simply not true. Uh, you know, we, we know that menopause has existed long before our society was here, uh, long before many societies were here. So it is the end of ovarian function. And, and simply that's it. It's not uh, because for because of our patriarchal society, you know, ovaries have been compared to testicles. And as, you know, men can continue to make sperm through their whole lives, the the sort of ending of ovulation has sort of been viewed as a flaw, but that has actually been the plan all along. The ovaries were never meant to ovulate till women are 90. They were meant to sort of stop functioning around the age of 50. And so it's, it's really just that planned end of ovarian function and there can be health consequences associated with it just as um, as with many biological functions but you know comparing the ovaries to the testicles is like comparing the heart to the liver they're different organs and so it's not a valid comparison when we actually hear the word menopause uh, talk about uh, where that comes from uh, when we think about um, you know patriarchy uh, when we hear the word men in the word menopause but it actually has a uh, uh, roots in what is it Greek and Latin in Greek actually yeah so it's a it's a term that came around uh, in the early 1800s uh, named by a French physician uh, dr. Charles de Jardin and uh, before that, the common terms were climacteric or um, the cessation. Uh, those were two of the common ones being used. And uh, we don't really understand why he felt there needed to be a new term, but it uh, seems he had a book coming out. So that, <laughs> that seems to be, you know, uh, the more, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? And uh, and so he, he named it after uh, two Greek words, um, the Greek word menes, which is a month or monthlies, which was a common term for menstruation at the time, and pausi, which is Greek for cessation or ending. And so it's, you know, menstrual ending really, but uh, pausi um, sounds like pausi, and that became pause. And obviously, you know, in our, in English, pause means something different, but, uh, but it's really was palsy, which is cessation. So menstrual cessation. 
I thought what was striking in reading your book, again, the Menopause Manifesto, that most women will spend a third or even half of their lives postmenopausal, but yet there's not a lot of understanding about uh, what's going on with women's bodies. Yeah, and that really gets back again to sort of the systemic neglect of what happens to women's bodies, right? So, you know, the standard in medicine is, you know, a male body, right? And so when we when we study heart disease, what we're really studying is heart disease in men, right? When we study diabetes, we're really studying diabetes in men. And it's only been, you know, relatively recently that, you know, there's been this, um, you know, hey, hey now, may, maybe things are actually different. And, and we if we don't study that, we won't know. And so, yeah, there just hasn't, hadn't been much discussion or much research uh, until, you know, relatively recently, the last sort of 20 or 30 years. And really in the last 10 years, I would say there's been an explosion of good quality, you know, research. But, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that we've been behind the eight ball for a little while. You're hearing Dr. Jen Gunter here on Where We Live. She's an OBGYN, a women's health advocate, and she also has a podcast, Body Stuff, with Dr. Jen Gunter. Uh, she's a best-selling author, wrote the Vagina Bible. Her latest book, The Menopause Manifesto, is what we're talking about today. And so I know that menopause varies from woman to woman after reading your book, but can you talk about some of those variations, the typical age where women start to have symptoms and what are those common symptoms dr gunter yeah so just before i get into that i always like to tell people so remember how puberty is really different person to person you know some people might start puberty when they're nine and someone else when they're 11 and um and so that is really similar with menopause so everything is sort of a general average so the average age is around 51 to 52 um so that means obviously 50 percent of people before and after uh, the years leading up to menopause are known as the menopause transition or, you know, premenopause or perimenopause. And this is the time that most closely mirrors the reverse of pregnancy, This, uh, sorry, the reverse of puberty. This is when ovarian function is starting to wind down and uh, ovulation becomes erratic and hormone levels can be higher some months and can be lower some months. And these fluctuations in hormones uh, produce um, abnormal bleeding patterns most commonly. So leading up to menopause, that would be probably the most common symptom that people experience, but there can be various permutations and combinations of heavy bleeding, irregular bleeding, breakthrough bleeding, skipped periods, that type of thing. Other symptoms that can develop are hot flushes, vaginal dryness, um, dep mild depression can be triggered in the early uh, menopause transition. Even joint pain um, is described So, so really wide range of symptoms. And then the other sort of two, two or three sort of conditions that tend to increase around sort of the menopause transition or that sort of sets the wheels in motion are an increasing risk of heart disease, uh, osteoporosis, and, uh, and dementia. And so these are things that are when we talk about menopause, we often only talk about symptoms, but it's really important to talk about the health ramifications as well. When you uh, outline the symptoms, some of the medical conditions that can overlap with menopause, this is something that, uh, you know, naturally it doesn't sound like something we want to really go through. So can you talk about, you know, uh, how you talk with uh, your patients or just because you're a health advocate, you know, ways to what we should be approaching this as a woman, uh, as we age? Right. Well, you know, aging is associated with 
all kinds of health problems. And so it's sometimes people, you know, people sort of, I, I think sort of get menopause conflated with mm-hmm. there being some sort of dramatic, they sometimes look at it maybe with, with the wrong lens. So for example, with heart disease, when I say there's an increasing risk of heart disease, we're sort of catching up with the rate for men. Right. So, so it's always important to kind of have that perspective, you know? So what I say to people is this is a normal biological process and like with every sort of normal biological process, like puberty, like menstruation, like pregnancy, there are people who are not bothered at all and have experiences that are totally fine. And they follow the recommended health guidelines to help keep themselves in the best of care. And then there are people who have, who have more problems. So people with heavy menstrual periods or menstrual cramps or um, terrible nausea in pregnancy. And so just like those differences in, that can happen in normal physiologic times, those are the same things that can happen in menopause. And so, you know, the best way to approach it is to be armed with as much information as possible so you can take preventative care, so you can... Um, minimize the health complications. And if you're having symptoms, then you can get treatment early because, you know, we have modern medicine for a reason. Do you worry that when women are going through these symptoms, there's this mentality of, well, this is what what happens at your age and you need to suck it up? I mean, how do we change that um, mentality so that women aren't ignoring if there's another medical condition that needs to be addressed? Yeah, well, I think there's two things. So I think first, it's important to, um, to have conversations, because when you don't talk about something, again, the um, insinuation is it's shameful or dirty or gross. And, uh, and so then women may not even come in to get treatment, right? Because, you know, it's shameful why they're too embarrassed to bring it up where they may end up going to clandestine places, right? So, you know, so-called, you know, um, alternative health gurus and celebrity sites and, um, you know, people on menopause selling, people on Instagram selling, you know, menopause smoothies and things like that. And so they may end up actually, you know, doing things that could be potentially harmful with the lack of information. I think another big concern is the way menopause has been portrayed by the media. So, you know, the media loves to amplify uh things that are bad for women, that seems to get page clicks. And so when you talk to people about, for example, menopausal hormone therapy as one particular treatment option, um, you it's very common to hear, well, I don't want to take that, that's unsafe. And, you know, that's related to, you know, a study from, you know, the, the 2000s that, you know, that was sort of amplified inappropriately in the press. And, and so you have to sort of also fight that misinformation that's coming back at you as well. And, uh, you know, scary headlines um, get page clicks and retractions or corrections or correcting the record, you know, they don't, they, they don't get on the front page. So, you know, there's this, I think, misconception that all the therapies for the symptoms are, um, either not very good or that they are dangerous. And that's not the truth. There are actually many excellent therapies, not just hormones. And, you know, they are all, you know, really very safe. Edith is calling in from Canton. Go ahead, Edith. Good morning. My question is this. <clears throat> Could the menopause be a life, uh, a midlife crisis for women? Well, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I, I think it really 
depends on your own personal definition of what a midlife crisis is. Certainly, um, it's a physiologic change. And I think it's also important to point out that we evolved to have menopause, right? So this isn't some uh, something that's sort of an accidental sign of kludgy female physiology, you know, that, you know, that we were assembled incorrectly compared to you know, to men, um, we we evolved to have have menopause, likely because it was very helpful evolutionarily speaking to have another person around the family unit who didn't have to run around after their own small children and could actually be helpful with shelter and gathering food. And we actually have data to tell us that you know, that women in menopause were spending a lot of time being very productive, gathering, you know, food and, and providing shelter for, you know, for their own children's children, basically, and a lot of childcare as well. So, you know, I think that the press portrays menopause that way, but I think we need to fight back and, you know, really provide the anthropological data that menopause is actually a sign of strength for women. Is that why you wrote this book, Dr. Gunter? Yeah, I mean, I, the narratives that, that, you know, I faced, you know, when I was going through my menopause transition and menopause were all about, you know, this is when I was uh, single and I was, you know, dating and, you know, you're like, oh, you're undesirable, you're not on the market, you know, you're, and I was like, wait a minute, um, I don't accept a, sort of a narrative written by someone who doesn't look like me. And, and so, you know, I was aware of the grandmother hypothesis, which is what I just alluded to. Mm-hmm. And it really, you know, struck me as, I mean, I, the reason why I wrote the book was the lack, you know, just the general misinformation, but I really wanted to focus on this important evolutionary aspect of menopause because it really flips the script. The story that we've been told is that women are old and frail and they get useless when they can't menstruate anymore. And that is a huge lie. And the truth is, is that we we evolved to live beyond our ovarian function because we were useful to society, because we contributed, because we added value, and that we were valuable for decades after our final menstrual period. And so I want to reclaim agency and worth for women at every age. Uh, you wrote that right now about 64 million women in the U.S. are uh, under are in menopause and in, in the transition. And so uh, just to underscore that it's a transition, how does a woman know she's sliding into menopause versus something else? Right. So you it's one of these things that you're not going to know you're there until you're there. You know, it's a retrospective diagnosis. So the true diagnosis of menopause is when you're one year after your final menstrual period. But so you don't know it's been a year until, you know, it's been a year. So I like to call that the great menstrual weight. Uh, and, uh, you know, you won't realize you're in the menopause transition until you're kind of well into it, until your periods are super irregular, until maybe you've been feeling you know, some joint pain or hot flushes. But you also have to remember, you know, 25% of women don't have any hot flushes at all. So some people just like, they have a few regular periods and then they're done. So the, there's a huge variation. And this adds, I think a lot of people are frustrated because it's like, well, medicine should be able to tell me if I'm in my menopause transition. But again, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we accept that puberty doesn't really have a hard start and that, you know, you're in it when you're like, whoa, okay, wait a minute. I've like 
look how short my pants are all of a sudden. And, you know, you start to notice that you have pubic hair and, you know, you don't really start to notice your puberty till it's super obvious. And that's really the same thing with the menopause transition. And also you don't really realize puberty's ended until you can look back and say, well, yeah, you know, I haven't grown for a while. And, you know, I, that I, things seem pretty stable with my body. And, you know, I sort of, I meet all these sort of care, you know, these criteria that say puberty has ended. So I guess I, I stopped growing. I must've ended. And that's really the same for menopause. And so I think it's just really important to sort of mirror it to another biological function that we talk about a lot uh, on puberty until, you know, we've talked about menopause enough that we don't have to actually use puberty as a comparison. A couple of times you've said hot flushes. I know a lot of people hear hot flashes. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about why you choose to, to, to describe it this way. Well, it's probably two reasons. So one, that's the term they um, they use in the UK, and that's where my family's from. So, um, you know, just like I say process and, and people in the States say process, I think. So I think that's part of it. Uh, but also a flash to me is an instantaneous event, right? Like a lightning strike. And a hot flush lasts several minutes. Uh, and your your cheeks literally get, you know, often get red, um, just like you're flushing. So I think it's a better description. Uh, I personally like the uh, description that dates back to at least the 1700s, but perhaps earlier, um, called hot blooms. Uh, because it really does feel like the heat is rising up from your body out your head. It feels like a mushroom cloud of heat coming out the top. And uh, that was a term that, you know, women came up with. Uh, and it's really interesting. I during the pandemic, uh, I spent a lot of time buying old medical textbooks and because I really wanted to see how people wrote about menopause, you know, in this history, because someone told me when I was writing this book that menopause felt lonely and that there was no culture. And so I really wanted to, to really appreciate sort of how medicine was talking about it at the time to be able to put it in context. And one of the um, uh, book from the mid 1800s by Dr. Edward Tilt, who actually for the time was not patriarchal. I mean, obviously we would view his writing that way today, but for the time he was quite progressive. Um, he actually states that, you know, while you know, medicine calls it hot flushes, the term hot blooms is a more faithful representation of what happens. And so I'm all for reclaiming the term hot blooms. Well, thank you for clarifying that. Uh, speaking of history, Anita's calling in from Middletown. Anita, what's your question for Dr. Gunter? Hi, um, can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Okay, thanks for taking my call. Fifty years ago, my mom went through uh, menopause. She had depression, the hot flashes, and mood swings. And her doctor recommended electric shock therapy. And I remember her being in the hospital and her going through this and visiting her afterwards. And her short-term memory disappeared. I don't understand, and if you could explain it to me, what was the purpose of electric shock? And what was it supposed to do to help solve her symptoms? I don't think that I can answer that question for you at all, unfortunately. Um, you know, how things were diagnosed and treated, you know, 50, 60 years ago is very different to what we do today. And it's, we don't use much of that, really, in medicine. Um, you know, there depression is also triggered during the menopause transition and I'm not really aware of what the full complement of treatments were for um, depression, you know, back in the day. And so I don't know if that was an attempt to treat her depression or something else. I, I haven't come across ECT as being um, 
a, a, a standard old time therapy for um, for anything in menopause. So I suspect it was, uh, you know, a depression related treatment. And, you know, there were, you know, many awful treatments back in the day. Um, and so I, I don't think I can offer much insight into that, unfortunately. My guest today is Dr. Jen Gunter. Her new book is The Menopause Manifesto, as we learn about menopause. Uh, her book became a New York Times bestseller in the first week of publication back in May. Is it any wonder women want to understand their bodies and menopause? Historically, it's been shrouded in shame and secrecy. But if you read her book, we know menopause is not a disease. It's a normal biological process. We're going to keep talking about that after the break. And take your questions, too, if you'd like to share your experience with menopause or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, my guest is Dr. Jen Gunter. She's been called the Internet's gynecologist because part of her work is focused on correcting medical misinformation on the Internet and elsewhere. Her latest book is The Menopause Manifesto. Now, Dr. Gunter, I definitely want to get into um, why uh, you have gravitated to trying to debunk all these myths around menopause and some of those common myths. But I wanted to take a quick call from Nicole in West Hampton, New York. Nicole, what's your question? Nicole, are you there? It looks like she was unable to hear us, but I can see her question, Dr. Gunter. She said that she went through cancer treatment and wants to know what should women know who've had cancer treatment to watch out for, such as early menopause. Right. So I'm going to assume she means uh, the cancer treatment that can impact her ovarian function. So there are many therapies for cancer where that is an unfortunate consequence whether it's because of chemotherapy or radiation or specific medications that actually um, turn off the production of estrogen or block the effect of estrogen on tissues. And so women can come to um, sort of a premature end of their ovarian function um, a variety of different ways through cancer treatments. Also removal of the ovaries is part of some cancer treatment. And this is a very important thing to be aware of and is often overlooked because people are so ill from their cancer often and there's so many things going on and this isn't an excuse but just sort of an explanation that's sometimes the sort of the 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 we call it primary ovarian insufficiency this early end of ovarian function kind of gets missed and the earlier you go through menopause the greater the risk of um, having complications related to it so if your ovarian function stops in your 20s and 30s uh, really before the age of 45 actually you have a, have an increased risk of heart disease and the earlier it happens the greater the risk an increased risk of osteoporosis and an increased risk of, of dementia and when ovarian function stops in the 20s and 30s, often symptoms are worse because it's, especially when it's a dramatic drop, you know, your ovaries were trucking along functioning, you get this chemotherapy insult or this radiation, you have your ovaries out and boom, the levels change dramatically. And so it's important as long as it's safe for people to take hormones, because with some types of cancer, breast cancer, endometrial cancer, it may not be, uh, 
but for for all the other cancers, when there's this uh, premature end of ovarian function, that getting on uh, hormone therapy can actually help counteract many of the negative consequences. So let's talk, you, earlier you mentioned uh, that one of the reasons you decided to write this book, again, because there's so much in the media that focuses on the negative about menopause, and there are myths uh, out there, uh, but what about the, the role that you hear celebrity doctors and companies pushing supplements or other products, uh, and, and how that makes you feel when you see that? Yeah, it makes me feel like there's a pink gray tax. <laughs> you know, you know, menopause is the last um, unexploited frontier, right? So we see all kinds of scammy things for periods and scammy things for, uh, you know, for acne. That's probably the stand-in for puberty and uh, lots of scammy things for pregnancy. And, you know, I think the problem is, is when you have gaps in medicine and there are huge gaps with menopause, including how we talk about it in society, people are, other people are willing to step up and have conversations. So be it, you know, celebrities, uh, I would say, um, especially in the late 2000s, where have had really catastrophic effects on discussions about menopause because they were really exposing people to uh, to very unsafe and uh, basically lies about you know hormones and things. And uh, one popular celebrity who wrote about it, I mean, the physician who you know was apparently instrumental in helping her, you know, is you know still under um has still has a you know a license uh, probation from the medical board of california for her egregious prescribing of hormones so um you know i think it's really important that people understand that when someone's trying to sell supplements when someone's trying to sell you a product for home use for menopause there's a lot of um explosion of of testing, home testing for menopause, none of which is needed. Um, you know, people are trying to make a sale and that's really been, you know, I spend a lot of time educating people about how to access information online. And, uh, you know, the number one rule I have is if someone is selling you a product, they cannot be a reliable source of information about anything related to that product. Uh, before we get into, I really wanted to spend some time talking about menopause and brain health, Dr. Gunter, but we had a, a quick question from Kate uh, calling in from Stonington, Connecticut. She wanted to know what should women in their 40s expect if they're taken out of menopause for in vitro fertilization? Uh, I'm not sure I quite understand the question. Um, so I'm a... So, yeah, I don't think that I can really explain that. I would have to know a lot more from about the medical history to, 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 to answer that. If somebody is truly menopausal, then, um, then, then they can't have infertility therapy in the traditional sense. They could have egg donation, absolutely. Uh, and then they would be put on hormones and then, you know, go through, and, you know, be supported until pregnancy starts. And, uh, and so, but I, I, since I don't manage any that kind of infertility therapy, I, I wouldn't be able to answer any other questions about that. I wanted to play a clip about, again, how menopause is talked about in popular culture. Uh, here's comedian Jimmy Kimmel talking to actress Viola Davis. Can I tell you something? I know almost nothing about the female body. Ask my wife. I don't know what, where no, anything goes. And you're goes. not the only one. Is that true? You're not the only one. When you talk about anything, especially dealing with menopause or breasts, oh, forget it. men just die <laughs> a slow death. I know this is going to sound like a very stupid question, and it is a very stupid question, mm -hmm. especially for a man my age. No, go ahead. Hit me with it. What is menopause? 
I mean, I've heard of it. I know that it happens. You <laughs> know don't... what? Menopause is hell. It is. Jimmy. Is it really? Menopause is a dark hole. Okay, that's what menopause is. And that's where I'm at right now. Oh. So I either will love my husband today or kill him today. Oh, no. How long does it last? You know what? Somebody needs to tell me because it's lasted now for about six or seven years. But the other day, my husband said, V, can you take this bowl and put this in the sink? And then five minutes later, he looked at me. He said, V, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm fine. Are you sure you're okay? Because I found that bowl in the refrigerator. <laughs> Please tell me you're not going crazy. <laughs> but you might be going crazy. No, I'm not going crazy. I'm not going to go down like that. So the reason we wanted to play that clip for you, Dr. Gunter, again, it, it shows some cluelessness again about menopause. But is Viola's story a good example of, of brain fog? Uh, yeah, so about two-thirds of women will experience brain fog during the menopause transition, and it can be some you know, episodic forgetfulness. And I think uh, it's, it's important to point out that this is temporary, and it is not a sign of dementia or declining brain function. We actually have some really good data. This has actually been followed um, and evaluated. This is a really good case of where physicians have taken the concerns of women seriously and investigated it. And we know that even during the menopause transition, when women have brain fog, they still cognitively outperform men on studies. So I'd like to just get that out there. Um, and, uh, and what we know is happening on brain scans is that some areas of the brain are shrinking. Now, people have used that in the past to say that, oh, we'll see that's a sign that menopause is bad for the brain. But we know in follow-up when these women are then followed that areas of the brain actually recover and other areas of the brain grow to compensate. But it's also important to know that we have always looked at menopause as a sign of loss and a sign of problems. And since we know that evolutionarily speaking, it is has been important, so it's not an accident. Uh, and we know that women in menopause, evolutionary speaking, were very useful to society. They couldn't obviously be very useful with non-functional brains. And so it's a way, one of the theories from, from actually Dr. Lisa Moscone, who is the person who actually has so spearheaded a lot of these, these brain imaging studies, is that this change in brain size in some areas getting smaller and other areas getting bigger may also be thought of as the brain pruning older connections that aren't needed. So people forget that there is a lot of neurological wiring involved in reproduction, uh, temperature control, all kinds of things happen in your brain to help with the process of ovulation and reproduction. And all of that sort of memory space is being used up with that. And once um, ovulation ends, that's no longer needed. And so the brain can actually prune pathways and sort of sweep out the old and, and create new pathways. And that's brain plasticity. And so, you know, instead of thinking it as brain fog, this is another term I'd like to change. We should think of it as a brain reboot. Mm. And so just as when, you know, you get that text alert that your phone is going to download the new operating system and you're panicked because you're not going to remember your passwords and it's going to be glitchy and some of the apps are going to have to be reinstalled. That's kind of what's happening with your brain. It's getting a new operating platform. And so it may be a little glitchy at the beginning while that's happening, but it will settle out. Eileen shared on Facebook, she'd love to hear you talk more about 
menopause and mental health with these temporary symptoms? Maybe some women who are experiencing depression, Dr. Gunter. Yeah, so it's you know important to recognize that menopause is not happening in a vacuum. And so while it's happening, you're aging, you're having medical conditions, life is happening. And so if you're having um, depression and you're in your sort of 40s, that is, so we don't see depression sort of in the 50s and 60s related to menopause. It's more something that can be triggered in the 40s, uh, you know, during the menopause transition that, you know, if you're feeling depressed, the first thing to do is, is to, you know, is to see your, your medical provider and get screened for depression, to get screened for your health, because it's also important not to brush it off as just menopause, right? So you could be developing a thyroid condition, or you could have depression for other reasons. You could have situational depression. Um, you could have uh, sleep apnea, not be sleeping well, and that could be affecting your mental health. Or it could be your hot flushes from menopause are keeping you up at night, and you're not sleeping well, and that's affecting your mental health. And once you're sleeping well, you might actually not have those issues anymore. So it's important to sort of look at it more holistically and um, and to be screened appropriately for depression, to be to have your general health looked at as well, look at your sleep, and then come up with a plan based on that. Again, you're hearing Dr. Jen Gunter. Her latest book is The Menopause Manifesto. We've been talking about menopause, learning more about it, setting the record straight about women's health and what's actually happening. We'll continue to take your questions after the break. Find us on Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. I really love talking to people every day who are doing important work and who are experts in their field. But there are also people who are making an impact in their communities. It has nothing to do with their titles or expertise. And I want to hear about the people in your town or city that have helped you, whether it was in the pandemic or long before. People who make your community great. You can email me, lucy at ctpublic.org, and tell me about them. And in the months ahead, the person you nominate may be featured on the show. Now today we've been learning about menopause with my guest Dr. Jen Gunter, an OBGYN and the best-selling author of the Vagina Bible, her latest book, The Menopause Manifesto, just came out in May. Dr. Gunter, I wanted to hear more about your own experience with menopause and some of the medical interventions that have helped you. Sure. So, you know, I started my menopause transition in my mid-40s, so very average. And, you know, my last period was around 50. And uh, I, I had symptoms, but it wasn't problematic in the sense that I knew exactly what was going to happen. So I had a lot of very irregular bleeding and I had have heavy periods my whole life. So this was just like extra. So knowing that that was a typical part of the process meant that I wasn't scared about it. So I think that was really important. And also I knew what all the interventions that I could have. So if things got problematic, I, I could have treatment. So I think the knowledge really helped a lot. There was no anxiety about it at all. Uh, you know, and when I decided that, you know, the hot flushes were kind of getting bad enough that I was um, not sleeping very well and, you know, uh, 
when I was operating, especially when I was using x-ray equipment, you have to wear a, basically a lead dress under your operating room gown. And, you know, the ORs are warm for patient care. And, you know, I take all that off at the end of the case and be just soaked in sweat. I thought, okay, this is ridiculous. I need to do something about that. And I also have a very strong family history of osteoporosis. My mother actually died from osteoporosis and estrogen is preventative therapy for that. So those combination of factors made me decide that menopausal hormone therapy was right for me. And uh, the other thing that I was probably very helpful for me was that was at one of the times in my life when I was in my you know peak physical shape. And one thing we haven't talked about is the importance of focusing on muscle mass, not only just as we age, but during menopause is during the menopause transition, we, uh, we lose more muscle mass um, than we would normally by an age related decline. And uh, the loss of muscle mass has many sort of catastrophic consequences by affecting your metabolism and leading to sort of more weight gain around the middle, which is called visceral fat affecting osteoporosis. And so, you know, during that time I was, you know, lifting weights and being, you know, very physically active. And I think that was also, you know, very protective and it was just a fluke. You know, I was doing it to get a revenge body, which wasn't really the right reason, but it, it, it all worked out. <laughs> so when you talked about menopausal hormone therapy, the other side is non-hormonal non therapies like exercise, like quitting smoking, eating a certain diet uh, to help uh, you through some of those symptoms. Yeah. So, well, so, you know, when we all talk about, you know, what's the one thing that you can do for menopause? You know, if you can only pick one thing, I would always pick exercise because that's going to protect your heart, your bones, um, your muscles, your brain. It's, you know, it touches every domain and quitting smoking as well. You know, diet's really important from an overall health standpoint, but it's not going to specifically help with symptoms of menopause. Uh, certainly you want to make sure you're getting enough calcium in your diet, because if you're not getting enough calcium, then that's going to increase your risk of osteoporosis. So that's an important thing. But, uh, but there aren't any foods, superfoods or, you know, special foods that are going to change your menopause experience beyond improving your heart health, which is significant. I mean, you know, not, um, you know, having your, um, your lipids, you know, be in the right range, all these things are super important health wise. So um, a diet will be helpful to keep you in your overall good health, um, but isn't going to specifically uh, mitigate any symptoms of menopause. When we talked about menopausal hormone therapy, is there an end? When should a woman stop taking this? Well, so that's uh, something that, you know, we don't have the most long-term data on for okay. brain health. Um, and so everything's a little bit of a caveat. And, there, and people are like, well, why don't we have the follow-up data? Well, you know, the brain imaging is relatively recent in our medical history, right? Like 30 years ago, we couldn't have done these studies. And somebody has to be on hormones for 30 and 40 years for us to know the 30 and 40 year sort of long-term follow-up. But the, the bulk of the information that we have is that, you know, when people start menopausal hormone therapy under the age of 60 and within 10 years of their last menstrual period, that it's, you know, very safe. Starting it older is different and not recommended. So we do not recommend starting over the age of 60 or more than 10 years from your final period, because for those women, we know that dementia is increased and cardiac disease is increased. Mm. So for younger women, you know, I always tell people it's important to think of, even though menopausal hormone therapy is very safe, it's important to think why you're on it. 
And if the only reason you were on it was because of sort of depression in the menopause transition or hot flushes in the menopause transition, it's possible that three, four or five years after, you know, when your period stopped, that those things may not be issues for you anymore. And so like any therapy, any long-term therapy, it's important to sort of uh, revisit you know, once a year and see if it's something that you still need or not. Obviously, if you have a family, a strong family history of osteoporosis or at risk for osteoporosis, then you may decide you want to stay on it preventatively. Um, if, uh, you know, some people are, um, you know, very afraid about stopping, but I think it's just really important to think like, why were you on it? And, and to individualize, is this something that you're going to need long-term or not? You know, the average duration of hot flushes is, you know, about seven years. And so, you know, someone who starts, menopausal hormone therapy at the age of 48 for hot flushes may certainly want to revisit whether she still needs it when she's 58, right? And so I think it boils down to how each person feels about it, um, what else is going on in their life and their, you know, their other medical concerns. But, you know, rest assured that for the the majority of people who are otherwise healthy and and don't have a, you know contraindications to menopausal hormone therapy, the transdermal therapy seems to be incredibly low risk, even even for longer term use. Your book, The Menopause Manifesto, is really informative, uh, taught me a lot about menopause. And I wanted to just end on the fact that, you know, you write in, in all your talks and the message that you put out there is that menopause is also a time of great creativity and productivity, even if society treats this as some type of phase of death, so to speak. So what advice or final thoughts do you want to share with our listeners who are at the various stages of their menopause journeys? Well, think about all that space that's being freed up in your brain by not needing all those things to control, you know, your reproductive cycle. Uh, so think about it that way. And, you know, many women tell me that they feel a clarity once the menopause transition is over. And I really wonder how much of that is related to, wow, I, you know, like when you clean out your computer, you know, and you get rid of all the cookies and stuff, and then all of a sudden it's functioning way better. Um, you know, I would encourage women to think about their brain and their menopause in that way, that there may be a rocky phase, but when they get through, um, there may be sort of clarity on the other side. And I, I like to tell people that, you know, I've had some of the greatest sort of successes in my life uh, when I was menopausal. I've written two New York Times bestsellers when I was menopausal. I wrote my first uh, column for the Times over the age of 50. I met the love of my life in um, during menopause. So, you know, it's not a pre-death. This is just uh, another phase of the journey. And I, I wish we could reclaim it and call it the climacteric. And I think we should have crossing the Crimson Bridge parties. <laughs> I love that. And I also wanted to read the dedication in your book because it relates to what you just shared with us. Uh, you wrote, for every woman, your awesomeness is unrelated to your estrogen. Uh, great words to end on. Also, we thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Jen Gunter. The latest book again that she's written, another bestseller, The Menopause Manifesto. She's an OBGYN and as she mentioned, a New York Times columnist, a longtime women's health advocate. You can check out more of her work on our website. We'll link to that uh, on our social media. Dr. Gunter, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me.
I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Robin Doyne Aitken with help from Matt Dwyer on the phones. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Thanks to our interns, Maisie Carvalho and Kelly Langevin. And on Monday, we're actually going to talk to the state's top elections official who's announced she's leaving at the end of her term. Secretary of the State Denise Merrill will find out more about her decision. We'll also discuss this moment in history on a national level, including efforts by some red states to make election laws more restrictive. We hope you can join us. Have a great weekend. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. What happens to women's bodies during menopause? Today, where we live, a frank conversation with OBGYN Jen Gunter about what your mother probably called the change. Dr. Gunter's new book is The Menopause Manifesto. Why is menopause such a mystery? As a culture, we don't talk about it. In fact, women get the message this normal biological transition is somehow shameful. Coming up, we dispel myths about menopause. What questions do you have? Join the conversation where we live right after the news. If you have ovaries, you're going to experience menopause. On the next Where We Live, a frank discussion with Dr. Jen Gunter, author of the new book, The Menopause Manifesto. What exactly is happening to women's bodies during menopause? We dispel myths and take your questions too. Join us, Where We Live. <laughs> 